Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tussaud. And I'm Anne Friedman. I talked to the artist and writer Jenny O'Dell, who has a new book called How to Do Nothing Resisting the Attention Economy. And a lot of her book is about how you can't just tell people don't look at your phone so much. You kind of have to retrain or like help them think about other places they could or should be putting the attention that they currently give to, say, social media. Hi, Anne Friedman. Hi, hi. How's it going? How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> I asked you first. <laughs> I, I believe we asked each other at the same time. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, well, I will tell you. I know I told you this over text message, but we have not talked about it, which is that I was hiking yesterday and I almost stepped on a baby rattlesnake. I'm not even kidding. And I don't know that you and I have specifically talked about this before, but you know that like snakes are my number one fear, right? I did not actually like, know that. Like to the point where um, it's why I was so anti like crocodile hunter because there are so many snakes <laughs> that popped up in that genre of like <laughs> Discovery Channel. I it's it's why I had a hard time with the Taylor Swift Kimye beef because there are so many snake emojis. Like I cannot. <laughs> the thing doesn't even have to be alive. Like just yeah, it's like just thinking about it now. I'm getting goosebumps. And so when you sent me that photo this morning, I screamed and I was like, wow. Nowhere is safe. Truly nowhere is safe. Wow. And I feel bad that I didn't even know to send it with a trigger warning. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, you're alive, so that's good. I'm alive. And uh, it was one of those things where it took me like I was like, okay, I'm going to take a photo of this thing. I'm just going to assume it wasn't actually dangerous until I get home and uh, compare it to photos of other snakes in this particular state park. And lo and behold, it was 100 percent a rattlesnake. (laughs) I like um, I can't even wrap my mind around like not dangerous snake a concept I don't understand so <laughs> as far as I'm concerned everything is a cobra or a rattlesnake it doesn't bother I mean I really don't have I'm trying to think like I don't love the idea of like coming across a snake like in my bathtub or something like no, random where I don't expect it <laughs> but but there's really not that many things that in unless they are like actively trying to do me harm which like most little things in nature are not i i really don't have many like bug or creepy crawly kind of fears it's the only bug slash creepy crawly fear i have and i like can't can't quite pinpoint it to where it's from maybe it's that j-lo snake movie from like a million years ago (laughs) or something um what was that called anaconda anaconda (laughs) or something else but no truly yeah i fully cannot with snakes uh but i'm glad that you are here to podcast today oh my god well this is actually like an unexpectedly perfect intro to today's episode um i talked to the artist and writer jenny odell who has a new book called how to do nothing resisting the attention economy and a lot of her book is about how like you can't just tell people don't look at your phone so much you kind of have to retrain or like help them think about other places they could or should be putting the attention that they currently give to say social media 
And one place she comes up with as an answer a bunch is nature. Um, not snakes in particular, although <laughs> um, presumably that's like part of the experience of paying attention that I should have been having. Otherwise, I wouldn't have almost stepped on this thing. Well, but nature is not not doing nothing. How to do things that capitalism doesn't value is like not the catchiest. Although I would also buy that book. <laughs> <laughs> I would totally buy that book. But I like I think that's actually really interesting. It's that nothing is in relationship to capitalism and to productivity, right? You know, the argument of put your phone away is something that I think we've talked about this before a little bit. I chafe at that a lot when um, it's an argument against technology. But if, it's an, but if it is an argument against capitalism, then I'm 100% on board. Yeah, and, um, and you know, she gets into this a little bit too, which is to say it's not that like interacting with people through the device of your phone or through digital means is bad. It's more about questioning things like the way Instagram and Twitter and Facebook are designed and like the way that their design does not actually privilege the things that you're going to them for. Um, and I think like that idea of, okay, so when we talk about social media right now, we're essentially talking about like a few really popular apps created by a few big companies. We're not talking about like literally everything you do with your phone. Like one example being like the group text thread is not a monetized space right now. I mean, like, yeah, you pay like your AT&T bill or whatever, but not, you know, people are not like, um, a company is not like racking up how many texts you've sent if you are like on iMessage or whatever and like selling advertisements against them and things like that. And so I think like, you know, she makes some important distinctions too that like, you're right, it's not like phones equal bad or like digital communication equals bad. It's more like think harder about um, the platforms you use that someone is monetizing. Woof. Um, I'm just think I'm just thinking now about like who's the bad company that's going to monetize our group chats because you know that that's coming someday in the future. What I really like about Jenny and what I really like about this book is that she's she's kind of talking. It's not just a critique of what's happening. It's not just a critique of what's happening on social media. It's not just um, asking you to think harder or be better about how you use it. It's also asking you to evaluate where you put your attention beyond the space of your phone and what you're designed to like really hone in on and pay close attention to. And I think, um, I think that for me, even when snakes are not involved, um, is, is very critical, is very crucial life advice that I'm taking to heart. And it's like, you know, this is one of those books I read where I just kept underlining things. Like, do you ever, do you have a book like that where you're oh just like, Oh my God. You're when just it, like, everything is, everything is relevant. Underline, underline, underline. Too relevant. Uh, so here, here is Jenny O'Dell. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to CYG. So when did you decide that you wanted to change your relationship to attention or... <laughs> Maybe better phrases. When did you decide you wanted to use your attention differently? You know, I, I talk a little bit in the book about this moment of crisis in late 2016 in which I found myself sitting in a rose garden near my apartment pretty much as often as possible. Like any time that I could get there, I would be there. Um, so I think maybe initially I was just struck by the difference of not really like amount of attention, but quality of attention between when I was spending time there and then kind of the rest of the day. So almost kind of like a difference in kind, not quantity. I think we pay different kinds of attention to different kinds of things. Um, and so putting yourself in situations that invite a different kind of attention can be very therapeutic in a time like this. 
You know, when I was reading your book, I kept thinking about that phrase, pay attention. Like, ugh, it really is a form of currency, like capitalism. What have you done to our language? But also we get to decide where and how to spend it, um, even though our phones make it feel sometimes like we don't have a choice in the matter at all. So what does a deeper, better kind of paying attention feel like to you? Or what does it look like? I mean, like, you don't have to talk too personally. (laughs) I'm assuming it doesn't look like staring at your phone. (laughs) I mean, I think uh, without sounding too cliche, I think some of it has to do with depths of attention. I don't know, or like resolution, maybe. I just feel like, um, you know, from my own experience, looking at things on my phone or just online, there's so much. And I feel like the attention that I pay to everything is uniformly shallow. I don't feel like I'm fully really like making contact with anything. And I certainly don't have, you know, the ability to process or reflect on anything in that kind of um, situation versus I think when I am outside and I'm kind of looking at things, you don't have to be in a totally, you know, naturalistic setting to be able to kind of access different scales of time and space. I mean, you know, I talk a lot about bird watching in the book, but like, you know, looking at, at birds and starting to think about like all of the forms of life that are around you and things that are, you know, much older than maybe like the city that you're in. I don't know. It just seems to like expand out into other kind of scales of time and space. And it feels a lot less claustrophobic um, to me in that way. And so do you get that expansive feeling by just letting yourself ask questions that lead to other questions or I, how do you do it? Yeah. Asking questions or I don't know, being curious about things or just getting outside of a very myopic and kind of self-centered point of view. There's just something about the kind of social media that we have right now that feels, even though it's so built on anxiety and envy, it's still very much centered around the self. There's so much kind of algorithmically catered to you. And after a while, I just, I start to feel so sick of that. And so it's kind of a relief to inhabit some kind of context that's not so centered around me or even like a human perspective. So yeah, 100%. The algorithms can only do so much. They can recognize that you're upset about like the 2016 election results and they can serve up more and more anti-Trump posts that you'll like. Um, But they can never create like the experience of walking (laughs) through the Rose Garden or what that represents to you and how you made sense of that 2016 election experience. And even if they did it, somehow it would be so boring (laughs) compared to the actual Rose Garden, I feel like. Okay, but just to clarify, you're not arguing that we stop using the internet as a tool for organizing and doing activism, right? Like the internet is still good for some things. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, and and I, you know, it kind of gets to the point also that I make in the book that I'm not um, anti-social media either. I have problems with commercial social media and this kind of financial incentive to keep someone on a platform all the time and to advertise to them and whatnot. But the actual just fact of social media or being connected to other people and being able to share information and find out about things is not in itself bad. It's actually, you know, quite amazing. Like just even the other day I was driving home and I was listening to um, the UC Berkeley radio station and I don't know what there was just uh, this DJ that was every single song she was playing was amazing in ways that I could not explain and they weren't they didn't even they weren't even of the same genre. So it was like uh, an eerie, like person version of (laughs) Discover Weekly or something. But it's just, you know, it's like that person's, that individual person's sensibility that I was like just very surprised by. 
Yeah, I love that part in the book where you write about the experience of uh, listening to the radio in your car and how it's so different from like what Spotify wants to serve you as Jenny Radio TM. Like, uh, <laughs> like how, how it can be so wonderful to hear something that's so far outside your personal algorithm. Yeah, no, and that's a great example of how something like, yeah, being connected to other people can be really useful and you can... You know, like we've always found out about really interesting things from each other. So obviously anything that helps us do that is going to be useful. Uh, so I read an interview with you where you said that it's pointless to tell people to give up their phones unless you're also offering some meaningful advice about where that attention should go or how to rewire our ability to do things without our phone. And I really love that. It, it really resonated with me and like maybe stoked some of the annoyance with bold statements about leaving Facebook. And it's sort of like, okay, sure. I don't really believe it when you're saying it on Facebook or whatever. <laughs> um, and we can't all just go cold turkey on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Like it won't take, it won't work. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know. I think it's, you know, for me, it's pretty simple. It's just sort of like you can't ask someone to stop paying attention to something without giving them something else to pay attention to or or at least suggesting a direction they could go in. I feel like this kind of obsessive wanting to stop looking at your phone is in, that, in its obsessiveness is still giving actually a lot of attention to that that whole kind of realm. Um, whereas like, I'm kind of interested in walking away from that altogether. I'm extrapolating from my own kind of experience, but I am a person who, you know, gets absorbed in things. And I feel like social media is designed to hijack that capacity to get me absorbed in things that it wants me to be absorbed in. And there's nothing wrong, again, there's nothing wrong with that impulse. But I think that if you take that as a given and you say, okay, like we're human beings and we're curious and we get engaged in things, then it doesn't make as much sense to just kind of like tell someone to just stop doing something in sort of like a reprimanding way kind of makes more sense to, you know, maybe look around and find somewhere else that, that you could reinvest that attention and that curiosity. So for me, that just happens to be, you know, ecology and, and local history, but Really, I think um, these feelings of curiosity and being surprised and learning about things and, and the way that kind of gets you out of yourself, um, to me, is like a really genuine antidote to kind of the whole ethos of, of the personal brand and being kind of caught up in social media. Okay, so maybe this is kind of cynical, but what about people, I assume there are these people, who just don't want to step outside of themselves. Like there are people who are excited to only listen to their curated radio station or to have their views reinforced, who only want to see things that they know they're probably already going to like. Um, is your book for them too? Yeah. Like people who don't even know they're dissatisfied or maybe people who truly aren't dissatisfied. Hmm, yeah. That's <laughs> I think this is an odd example, but one of the books that I quote from is uh, Rebecca Solnit's Paradise Built in Hell, um, which is about, uh, it's basically case studies of, of disasters after which, you know, people were surprisingly resourceful and flexible and actually sometimes had a surprising sense of humor in the wake of those disasters. And, and the book is really meant to push against the kind of sensationalized coverage that you often see after disasters, where it's kind of every man for himself and people fighting and we're all kind of just uh, uncivilized, you know, animals. And the reason I bring that up is that in a lot of the kind of interviews that she quotes from, you know, these are just 
people who had lived, say, like on a street um, next to a bunch of other people that they had never talked to. And what happened after these disasters, a lot of them, they expressed this kind of awe where they say, you know, like, I had this I had this feeling of purpose and I, and I was surprised by the people around me and what we were capable of. And it just sort of like broke through the monotony of the everyday. And I just feel like, you know, some of those people probably weren't expecting that. I'm wondering if like you can be going along with your life and think that that it's great. And and then something comes along that interrupts that and surprises you. And you find out that there's actually this other kind of layer of meaning that feels good. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I mean, I can't know whether that's the case, but but that's one of the reasons I love that book so much is because it really gives me like faith in humanity. <laughs> Right. The sense that we're not actually all craven, horrible individualists at heart. And in fact, we're just so alienated about what feels good about living in true community. Yeah. Or I I think there's something in between too, right? Where you might feel dissatisfied, but it hasn't quite surfaced to the level where you can articulate it. I mean, I certainly have feelings like that, you know. Um, And then I think ironically, that drives someone to then engage with something like social media in a kind of toxic way as a way to kind of get away from that uncomfortable feeling of being dissatisfied with something. With social media as this easy default option we all have when we're feeling bad about the world or when we're feeling lonely, how do we individually and collectively encourage ourselves to want something better? Like in an ideal world, how would we all be using our attention to pursue something better together? Like that to me seems like the goal. Yeah, right. That's the the key is in, a, in an ideal world because um, I it's sort of depressing to me actually to look back at something like the movement for the eight hour workday in the 19th century as this kind of, I mean, I take huge amounts of inspiration from that in the book, but it also, you know, more and more in retrospect looks like this kind of island of stability in what, what has otherwise been this kind of crush of extreme bottom line thinking. Um, um, maybe you can back up for a second and explain how the eight-hour workday came about for people who uh, haven't read your book or don't know their labor history. So in 1886, there was um, a very concerted um, labor movement for the eight-hour workday. So their motto was eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, and eight hours for what we will. And they had a kind of uh, block print graphic for that. And obviously, there's you know people working in a factory in the first one. Then you see kind of like feet sticking out of a blanket for the second one. And then the third one, what we will coincidentally is people reading a union newspaper. So, (laughs) but still, I think, you know, the kind of the description, what we will is very humanely not defined. It's not eight hours for self-improvement or exercise or education. It's literally what we will. And if you look at the kind of the history of that and how long it took to actually establish the eight hour workday, and the resistance to this otherwise kind of bottom line mentality of everything must be as highly efficient as possible, even at the cost of human well-being. You really see that these moments are kind of like islands that have been precariously held open against the, this capitalist logic that continues to work its way into every facet of our lives so that now, you know, we obviously don't have uh, a lot of us don't have the eight-hour workday anymore, and then you kind of also have this 24 potentially monetizable hours kind of schedule, especially for someone working in something like the gig economy or someone who's working more than one job. Um, and so it's you know it's 
something that I definitely felt like I needed to address in the book, because if you're talking about refusal, there's also a kind of margin that's required for refusal, um, whether it's legal for you to, to you know, protest, whether you have the time uh, or you have the luxury of refusing. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it feels like that margin is, is being closed down continuously and continues to be for a lot of people. Exactly. So it's been redefined as a luxury. Um, And I think in some ways, like carving out time and space away from being productive or working is in many ways what all this current language about self-care is about, like at least on a surface level, like in the face masks and baths sense. Um, And on that level, like in that use of the term, self-care is just another privilege for people who already have time and already have the ability to keep capitalism from infecting their every single waking hour. Um, so I don't know, I guess what I'm saying is like, yes, like the right of refusal, um, like should be a right, but anti-capitalist baths are a privilege. It's like, it's horrible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's just so tragic, (laughs) you know, because when I look at these, these islands of, of this resistance in history, it feels so much like, um, you know, putting one's foot down, um, in this kind of argument for what we need to thrive as people. Um, and so it's, that's why, and, you know, I kind of end up saying in the book that even though this, this isn't something that a lot of people have access to, I still see it as a right. And I'm kind of holding it, um, as like an ideal, um, that, you know, hopefully we could move towards, but still recognizing that it's something that a lot of people don't have access to. And if you do have some space in your life that you can choose to claim for not being productive, which I definitely applies to me, and I would say probably applies to a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, um, you almost have an obligation to do it, you know, like for everyone who can't opt to do nothing um, or who has to monetize or be productive every hour of their waking day, those of us who don't have to can can log off, can just not do it and refuse. Yeah, right. I mean, I think what I'm saying is really similar to what a lot of people have said about privilege in general, which is, you know, if you have it, use it. (laughs) Like if you have it, use it to try to like lift others up around you. So my argument sort of similar, which is if you look at how much organization it took for something like the eight hour workday or any of the other kind of moments of refusal that I talk about in the book, Um, obviously that requires concentration on an individual and a collective level. You know, the things that I'm kind of talking about in the book are aimed at that kind of space where it's not quite activism yet. It's the thing that comes before maybe it's something that might help you think more clearly, um, have the kinds of dialogues with yourself and with others that would be necessary to then kind of push on all of these forces. Um, I think a lot about how the only reason I'm able to distance myself from Twitter, which is an increasingly toxic place, I think, um, uh, but is also a place where a lot of my fellow journalists hang out for hours and hours every day. It's sort of like an industry water cooler. The only reason I can walk away from that, um, even though I don't live in the same town as a lot of other journalists, is because I'm at this point of stability in my career. Like I have connections now and therefore more power and I don't need to try to respond to potential colleagues on social media all day, like as a result. And then I also get this, you know, not only am I more stable, you know, and that allows me to opt out, I get this additional mental health benefit, which frankly, I could have used those mental health benefits a lot more back when I was trying to establish myself as a writer and up my pay rate and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Gia Tolentino made kind of a similar point. Yeah, she has kind of a, a similar observation about 
getting to a point where she can afford to not be online so much. Um, that it is this kind of its own form of of capital. And so foregoing it is in some ways sort of a luxury. Ah, the luxury of refusing to participate in circular outrage. Such a luxury. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I talk in the book about this moment, again, in kind of late 2016, where I was seeing this kind of, at least, you know, among people that I was connected to, this kind of uptick in expression on, you know, Facebook and Twitter, um, especially on Facebook, because you can write, you know, really long posts on there, you know, myself included, um, a lot of people were sort of posting these very genuine posts about being outraged and being kind of caught up in this emotion. And then those posts are getting like tons of likes, right? And like tons of engagement and everyone, um, I think I, I described in the book as like a bunch of firecrackers going off in a room that fills up with smoke. And and again, it's like important to me to say, like, I don't think that those emotions were not genuine um, and they're obviously very warranted, but I sort of wondered like what it was doing that obviously on the one hand, it's um, generating a lot of revenue for this platform because it's just more engagement and it's more time spent on there. And then it also seemed like it was just kind of like fomenting more emotion. Like there's something very seductive about being in an emotional state. Like you kind of want to stay in it. And like when you're angry, like you want to stay angry. And when you're sad, you want to stay sad. And, you know, have it, getting a bunch of likes or comments on a post kind of feels that way versus, you know, things like coordinated action, which often I think follow an emotional reaction where you then have to kind of think strategically about, okay, like, who am I going to talk to? Like, what, how are we going to do this? Just like how much coordination and strategy that takes. And that's something I have a huge amount of admiration for is for people who are able to do that. And so I just, you know, I can't help but wonder um, what would happen if you took all of the energy that was being funneled into these outraged posts and actually directed that toward more intentional um, communications, like whether that's a group chat or an in-person meeting or just something that feels a little bit more targeted versus kind of like shouting into the void. But here's something I struggle with. I mean, on social media, it can be hard to tell when you're doing important work, like amplifying um, like activism opportunities and stories that are maybe not on the front page of the New York Times, um, when you're when you're essentially not letting something important fly under the radar, and when you're just throwing firecrackers in a room and not being productive. Yeah, yeah. It, I think it's um, sometimes hard to tell, but for me, um, uh, especially in that in that moment in 2016, it, I I definitely could tell that. Um, being in a state of like complete freak out is just not good for anything <laughs> for anyone. Right. Like, like I, I sometimes describe my book as being like about just like how to be okay enough to do anything. Um, and, you know, also I recognize that like maybe, you know, there are a lot of people that don't have that problem um, and are just like still doing the work. Um, but I think, you know, I was just observing with myself and with people I knew, especially here in Oakland, because we had the the ghost ship fire here that same around that same time that year. Um, it's really addressed to um, someone who is caught up in that kind of emotional and claustrophobic cycle online to the point where you're not even able to sort of think clearly about what you would like to do and what you need to say and who you need to say it to. Or like you can't see 
the claustrophobic cycle at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I have definitely, yeah, gotten some use out of things like that. Um, I mean, I feel like they're all just kind of reminders of the same thing, which is just, you know, occasionally you need to step outside of something in order to evaluate it and evaluate your own participation in it. Um, and I think, you know, I approach that with the same curiosity that I approach, you know, like learning about my local ecosystem, which is something I talk a lot about in the book, but, um, just inhabiting this kind of curious and, um, open-ended mindset, whether that's directed toward things around you or yourself. I love the story in your book about how having dinner at your neighbor's house shifted your entire perspective on your neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I live in a really big apartment building, but the apartment building is next to a house that we can kind of see from our balcony. So, you know, we've been here for almost three years, but it wasn't um, until this past year that we actually really got to know our neighbors and they invited us over for dinner at one point. So in the book, I talk about how strange it was to see my own street just from a slightly different angle um, and also to be inside the house that I had looked at every day. I also don't have a ton of friends with children um, and they have children so it was just sort of a perspective on this shared reality that was like a slightly shifted over from ours and and so I described kind of coming back home to our apartment and the apartment doesn't feel like the center of the universe anymore it just feels like another place on the street. And I just kind of thought about all of the people that live on, on our street, turning in for the night, like having their own individual worries, um, this kind of universe of concerns that there, there's no way I could possibly know. And that this actually caused me to see every single street differently, that it's not just kind of this inert space that exists around me, but actually there are many kind of points and centers everywhere around you all the time. I really like this idea of decentering yourself or stepping outside of your own comfort zone or experience and into someone else's world as a way of learning to pay attention to new things. Yeah, your own, the sort of like three dimensionality that you experience within your own mind is like, there are literally hundreds of those around you. Um, I mean, depending on where you are, but if you live in a city, you know, this kind of density of experience is really very mind boggling if you pursue it even a little bit. Right. Like at any point, you have infinite choices of what you could be paying attention to, which we like to think of as a new thing. But, you know, that's true outside your phone as well, like all around you, what you're hearing, what you're seeing, the way you're seeing it. And I really appreciate how you write about the many art projects that have shifted your personal thinking on this and helped you pay attention to the world in new ways, like music and performance art and even painting. Yeah. 
So I think one of the most important experiences I had like that, which I talk about a little bit, is the the John Cage piece that I saw um, at the symphony many years ago. So John Cage is kind of best known for his piece. It's called 433. There are several movements. So someone does sit at a piano, but they don't play anything. I think that piece gets written off uh, as just kind of like a conceptual art stunt. But what the piece is really about is the ambient sound in the room. It still gets performed to this day, and it's different every time because you'll have like chairs scraping or coughing or nervous shifting in one's chair. Um, and he was sort of of the philosophy that all sound is already music, which is something that in my own artistic practice I really sympathize with. So I saw a John Cage piece. It was not 433. It had a score, but the score is very based on chance, and it involves like a blender and a shuffled deck of cards. And, you know, it's definitely not your typical orchestra performance and all of these things are supposed to be you know part of the piece including the the audience laughing nervously um and and so I just remember walking out of that symphony hall and realizing that I had never really consciously listened to a lot of sounds um around me in San Francisco which at that point I had lived in for quite a while um and so I was kind of floored by this idea that there had been sound that was technically going into my ears, but just kind of not not being consciously processed and not really being grasped. Um, and so I feel like I've had that same experience over and over again with different pieces of art specifically, where I just feel like my entire uh, way of perceiving things in reality is, is remapped and it's permanent. I really don't think I listen to sound the same way now that I did before seeing that piece. And to me, that's such a a generous thing. Um, You know, something that an artist can do for viewers or listeners is to open up some part of perceptual reality for them. Right. So like intentionally refocus their attention to something new. Yeah. Or just, I don't know, like pointing things out. I mean, we've all had experiences of someone pointing something out to you, say like a building or something that you walk by every day and you just you just had not seen it at all. Um, And that could go on forever. I mean, there are many, many perspectives on, you know, any place where you are. So, um, so I kind of present those in the book as like training apparatuses for attention, um, that if you spend time with things like that, you can eventually kind of learn to move your attention around and expand and contract it um, with intentionality and volition rather than kind of having it like jerked around all the time and um, always kind of stuck in the shallow state. So reading your book really allowed me to critique some of the ways that I live and work and question the fact that, for example, I feel the best at the end of a day when I think I've been productive. And I don't necessarily mean that in a work sense, although often I do. Um, but I kind of mean it in, in terms of like the to-do list. Like if I've done what I've set out to do that day, like maybe I ran the errands I needed to run, or I worked on a craft project I wanted to work on, or dropped off a meal for my friend who just had a baby, like whatever. Some, some of these things are not work, but I found myself getting defensive. Like, Hey, like some forms of productivity are good. Yeah. Um, like I like, I'm attached to that feeling of being productive. I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Like the word productivity could mean a lot of different things. You know, the kind of productivity that I'm critiquing in the book is very specifically tied to like an ego-driven kind of uh, personal brand type of uh, productivity, as well as kind of innovation for innovation's sake, which is a very uh, Silicon Valley kind of concept. So the question that I'm kind of asking at the beginning is like, 
producing what, for whom, and why. Because I think uh, if you get very caught up in the cult of productivity, you risk not asking those questions. I don't know, I think about like my internal reward system and like what, what makes me happy at the end of the day. And it's like, I feel like I'm always just kind of looking for moments where I am reminded that I'm alive. Um, and I know that sounds sort of cheesy, but I just read um, Natural Causes by Barbara Ehrenreich. That book is about, you know, like basically how much of your life should you spend obsessively trying to extend the length of your life. <laughs> right. <like> tech <laughs> With, bros who are getting blood transfusions from young people who work out every day or whatever, like trying really, really hard not to die. Yeah, exactly. And I was sitting in the Rose Garden, I was reading it, and there's this paragraph about what happens to your brain after you die. And it's this like unsparing, I mean, the whole book is sort of darkly funny, but it's this unsparing description of like how you're like your brain just like liquefies and comes out of your ears. Um, and like, and I was just like, Oh my God. And I like, I looked up from this book and, you know, I'm like in this beautiful garden. Right. And I was like, my brain is just like holding itself together right now, but like it won't forever. And like, I just was like, so I think I like laughed out loud and then, like, the whole rest of the day, I mean, I went to the grocery store. Like, I waited in a really long line at Safeway. But I was just, like, looking around at, like, everything and everyone in line. And I was like, oh, we're all alive. That's so weird. Like, what does it even mean to be alive? Like, what am I? You know? And, like, that could be, like, potentially very disorienting. But, like, for whatever reason, like, I just really love that feeling. Because I think I I sort of have this fear that, the opposite of that to me would be like doing everything that I'm that I think I'm supposed to be doing over and over again every day, kind of like an automaton. And then I would I worry that I would get to the end of my life and and realize that I didn't like feel any of it or something. <laughs> so yeah, you want to appreciate yeah. whatever magical thing it is that's keeping your brain from leaking out your ears. Yeah, I mean that's crazy. I don't know. I mean, and it's also just so happens to be a really great antidote to getting sucked down some rabbit hole on my phone it's like that um space kind of can't compete with the the craziness of that thought you know <laughs> okay but i love an internet rabbit hole yeah. like sometimes i think those are the best digital experiences i have outside of like group text um you know like looking up a weird thing that leads to a weird video that leads to 10 wikipedia pages that leads to a google image search that i then bring back to the group text and we all laugh about it like that feels like the good kind of attention to me in some ways like is is there are there good ways of like thinking about or inhabiting digital space too yeah there's a term multiple simultaneous adjacency and I don't, I don't know who coined that, but it's supposed to mean almost like perceptual multitasking, like this idea that you can be aware of like two facets of reality at the same time. And um, there's a chapter that I assigned to my students um, from a book called Radical Technologies by um, Adam Greenfield, where he, maybe he's the one who coined it, I'm not sure, but he, he references that term and he says there's no such thing as multiple simultaneous adjacency. Like you can only kind of be in one of those at the same time. Um, and so I, th and I kind of feel that that's true. And, and like, you know, I like you, um, enjoy a good rabbit hole. I think it's just, um, I worry about the kind of attrition of one of those in favor of the other that, you know, like I worry about spending all of my time, not fully inhabiting just the place where I am. 
I mean, as a weird example, you know, I talk about the crows that I have befriended in this book, the crows on my street. And crows can recognize human faces and are some of, you know, the smartest animals that exist. And uh, I was walking down the street the other day near my apartment and I was looking at my phone and I was looking at something really dumb that I just like didn't need to be looking at. Um, And it was this beautiful day. And uh, one of the crows landed like right next to my head and just cawed at me really loudly. And uh, I mean, I know them, it's been a couple of years. Like I know them well enough. Like I, I know that sound. Um, it's the same sound that they make if they land near the balcony and I don't see them and I'm looking at my phone, they make the same sound. It was just this funny sort of reminder of like, hey, like you're here, like you're here and I can see you. To the crow, it's like, I'm just this human animal that's like, you know, I even if I don't feel like I'm walking down the street, I am walking down the street. And I can be observed walking down the street. So I value those kinds of of reminders because uh, physical reality doesn't have the same kind of persuasive design working for it as social media does. So do you think that paying more attention to the physical world around you makes you a more sensitive human, like in the way we usually use that term, uh, like emotionally sensitive or maybe makes you a better communicator, something like that? Yeah, it is it is an interesting question. I mean, I think it's a related a little bit to one of the ideas that I borrow from uh, Franco Berardi, who's this um, Italian theorist who wrote a very depressing book called After the Future that I, that I borrow from a lot. But he makes this distinction between um, connectivity and sensitivity. So connectivity is sharing of information where... Um, neither the sharer nor the receiver changes. Um, so they're kind of like stable units and the information also doesn't change and it happens very rapidly. My example of that is like some headline getting shared very quickly by like-minded people on Facebook. And then sensitivity is is the opposite of that. It's two kind of ambiguous, weirdly shaped uh, bodies sharing information which might get changed in the transmission. And then those two, um, the sharer and the receiver, might be changed by the interaction as they kind of go their separate ways. And he very much ties that to, um, he ties sensitivity to bodily um, interaction, uh, the sort of like body sensing another body um, and all the kinds of communication that we know how to do that um, are more than verbal and more than written. Um, so, I mean, it's it's kind of mind-boggling to think about like when you sit across from someone and you and you communicate with them like all of the other information that you're getting um, and responding to and that's affecting how you're responding um, that would not show up in something like a transcript. Right, which I think is one reason why podcasts feel so intimate, not to make it all meta, but they're <laughs> in some ways more like an IRL conversation than a text message. Um, side note, <laughs> hello listeners, hope you're paying attention to this intimate conversation. But still, it's still so different than, you know, something like, like, uh, certainly different from texting. And it's very different from, you know, me going on on a social media platform and like throwing something into the void. Like, it's very different than that. Right. I mean, podcasts are also happening like in people's heads, in their ears, often um, like in spaces where physical real life is also happening. And so unlike like looking at your phone and feeling like you're in the world of the phone, I think people listen to podcasts while they're running errands or exercising or commuting to work, whatever. And so they're more integrated with like this fully formed real world experience than if you're just staring at a phone and 
boxes on the phone, ignoring the physical world around you. Yeah. I mean, with podcasts, right? It's like it's in your ear. <laughs> it's like very, it's very close to you. <laughs> Extremely close to you. So, but we're talking about a book that you wrote. And how do you feel books fit into this? Because sometimes for me, I feel like the experience of reading a book is not that different from the experience of being in my phone. I mean, it's taking me away from the physical space that I'm in. Like I'm absorbed in the, the world of words on the page. Sometimes I guess there's like a deep connection with the author, but it doesn't feel like the kind of community or like IRL attention and interaction that you're describing. Yeah, it's very abstract, I think. Um, and that's why, I mean, I I feel like so much of actually reading a book for me is like talking about it afterwards with other people is such a big part of like actually taking in that information. God, I'm always trying to reverse engineer book club. Like, you know, I can't join one up front because I don't like to be told what to read, but I love trying to get all my friends to read a book that I liked just so we can talk about it. <laughs> That's kind of my style too. <laughs> okay, so if I gave you $1 billion or whatever, some absurd amount <laughs> to make a social media network that prioritized deeper attention and more meaningful connection, uh, what would you make? Um, I mean, I have only the vaguest idea. Actually, my, my secret hope is that someone out there who knows how to make something like that um, will read the book and then, yeah, somehow magically get funding, right? Um, and then make this utopian social network that I am like trying to imagine. I really hope that happens. But in the meantime, I mean, I, the things that I can say, you know, qualities that would be really great if for something like that to have is you know, number one, to be non-commercial. So I give some examples of um, open source, non-commercial networks like Mastodon, which is similar to Twitter. It does something similar to Twitter, but isn't really owned by anyone. You basically own your own data there. And then I think on top of that, you know, it'd be something that doesn't have persuasive design elements. So it would have no incentive to keep you on it all the time. And that's actually not that hard to imagine because we have an example of that already, it's Craigslist. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like Craigslist, it's not a coincidence that the person who started Craigslist um, purposefully chose not to go the route of kind of investment and growth that other platforms have gone. I watched this interview with him once where, you know, someone's basically asking Craig Newmark, who started Craigslist, why he didn't do that. And his answer is sort of almost like, why are you even asking me the question? Like, he's just like, I just didn't, I, I mean, why, why would I do that? And it sounds so self-evident when he says it, but then you look at like everything else that comes out of Silicon Valley and it seems, you know, quite exceptional. Right. Well, also Craigslist is designed to facilitate offline things. You know, you don't buy virtual patio furniture or like make a virtual yeah. adult friend there. <laughs> like, you typically use it for physical things in the offline world. Yeah. When I guess it's just, you know, I, I'm biased, but that is where kind of my own allegiances lie, where I would love to see some form of, you know, non-commercial social media in the service of things like habitat restoration and other kind of decidedly physical things. But I just think, you know, in general, Craigslist is an interesting example of something that uh, has remained the same for a long time and it still works and it does what it says it's going to do. You use it to do the thing that you want it to do and then you leave. And it's that simple, you know? <laughs> so I would love, you know, if we had some kind of decentralized, non-commercial social network that it would be kind of equally inert and just kind of like a tool that you use to do something really important and then and then you walk away. 
Okay, so I have to ask, what have you paid attention to today? Yeah, I actually unsurprisingly went to the Rose Garden this morning. (laughs) I was paying attention to, um, so there's a type of bird that's called an oak titmouse. And it's, yeah, it's not a mouse. Um, It's this little gray bird that uh, likes to hang out in oak trees. Um, I've seen it described as like the voice of an oak tree because they're just always in there. Oh my God, a bird called mouse that sounds like a tree. I love that. That's like a children's book, a bird called mouse. Like, yeah. (laughs) Sounding like a tree. Yeah, exactly. You know, I got into bird watching probably, let's see, like two or three years ago. Um, And so I I learned uh, what they look like pretty early on because there are a lot of them in my neighborhood. And I probably knew like the one, one or two songs that they most commonly sing. So I, I kind of consider that like a, you know, case closed. Like I know that bird. <laughs> um, and then this spring, I realized that a bu- this is actually, and I, I kind of have a lot of descriptions in the book of like being embarrassed by my own inattention to something. But um, I, mean, I was embarrassed to find that a bunch of songs that I thought were other birds that I just didn't know yet were all the oak titmouse. But I was trying to make a list of all of the different songs um, that I was hearing them make. And I, it, the list is still going. It's also really hard to write to to write down a bird song in human phonetic terms. They're just like the silliest looking words and phrases. Um, so, uh, and I'm not going to imitate any of them right now. But, okay, I'm not uh, asking you to do actual bird calls, but maybe you can just read them to me deadpan style. Yeah, I mean, one of them is definitely skidoo, skidoo. <laughs> um, so yeah, there was one in the tree today when I went to the Rose Garden and I was just kind of sitting and listening to it and thinking about um, how I have no idea what any of those mean. <laughs> and like this, you know, the, it's, I don't know, just like kind of sitting with the fact of this other creature that's expressing itself and living its own life and inhabiting this slice of reality that I can't imagine. So that's kind of what I was uh, zoning out on this morning. <laughs> right, right. Or zoning into, let's be real. There's, yeah, exactly. Jenny, thank you so much for being on the podcast. All right. Thanks so much for reading and for having me on the podcast. <laughs> you know, this is a really good interview, Anne. I told you already that I'm moving this book to, to the top of my pile to read because, you know, I think that it's a, it's a really, really, it's a really, really important topic and also something that, uh, you know, we can still do something about. So uh, I'm excited to read it. Um, I have a little experiment I want to do before we end the podcast, if you'll humor me. All the time. So Jenny talks about how there are a few different music performance art pieces that really helped her start to listen to the world in a more attentive way. And, you know, sometimes when we record interviews, the best producer on earth, Gina Delvac, sometimes makes us record like a minute of room tone, which is just the fancy podcast production term for sitting there with the microphone on and recording, but not saying anything. And I was thinking we could leave like a minute of our room tone in this podcast, but then also invite people who are listening to this to take out an earbud or um, enjoy the silence coming from their speaker and pay attention instead to what's happening in the world around them. Do you want to do it? I'm going to set a one minute timer for us and we are all going to sit together and do nothing but think. Okay. The timer is started.
Well, look at that. Oh my that God. Was extremely pleasant. What did you hear during your minute? I heard a very low hum. I heard the whole time. I heard a really beautiful bird singing outside and also my own nose whistle. I'm embarrassed to report. (laughs) (laughs) I heard a really low hum, which I'm pretty sure is coming from the building next door, but it was actually really, really pleasant. I also, how long did a minute feel? It felt so long. A while ago, I would have told you that it feels really long, but I've been doing this like meditation exercise. It's literally like couch to 5k for meditation. But I remember the first time it was like, you had to close your eyes for 30 seconds. And I closed my eyes for what I thought was an eternity. And it had been seven seconds. exactly. <laughs> so I, you know, like to pat myself on the back today, when I opened my eyes, it was literally, we had five seconds left on the timer. Wow. And I was like, okay, that I was like, I know what a minute feels like now of sitting, of sitting still. A champion. Not a champion. Just trying to, you know, just trying my best. You're but always a champion to really- me, boo-boo. Aw, <laughs> uh, thank you. But you know, like, this is the thing. It's like, you know exactly how many minutes are in a day and taking just like one tiny one to listen to what's going on around you. It feels pretty damn delightful. Yes. Okay. If you want to get Jenny's book, it's called How to Do Nothing. We'll link it in the show notes along with a few other things that she has written and also her artwork, which I is how I first got to know her. And I'm a huge, huge fan of it. At least at some point in her career, she's been the artist in residence at the San Francisco dump. So if that does not pique your interest, I don't know what will. We love a multi-hyphenate. So boo-boo, I'll see you on the internet. I'll see you on the nature walk. <laughs> <laughs> Shade, I'll see you soon. <laughs> You can find us so many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it. Wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. You can subscribe, leave us a rating or a review, and tell all your friends. You can leave us a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. Sophie Carter-Khan runs our social accounts. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. And this podcast is produced by the amazing Gina Delvac.